We're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. Verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. This is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please take this familiar passage of Scripture and let us really hear it, understand it, receive it, believe it, and respond in faith. In faith in the God for whom nothing is impossible in faith in the God who loved us so much that he gave his son to us, for us. Help us to trust you and to obey you more for the time we spend in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I was joking with Sean uh, before the Sunday school class, and I said, you know, I... I pretty much prefer preaching on passages of Scripture that people don't really know and haven't really read or studied closely. <laughs> because when you come to something that's so familiar and people have heard so many sermons on it, either people tune out because it's so familiar, or they've heard things and that's cluttered their thought maybe, and if I say something different, they might say, wait, that's not what I've heard, or whatever. So we're going to try to Pretend as if this is the first time we've heard this passage and come at it. Um, and I've titled this message, an, un, an Unbelievable Message. 
because it really is for Mary. Uh, Zechariah, we heard last week from Paul Foster, he, he got a message that was unexpected and stunning, but not quite as unbelievable, you know? It's, he was married, he had a wife, like, you know, John the Baptist was born of ordinary way, except that God intervened and gave a childless couple, a woman who was said to be barren, a baby. He had done that before uh, in the lives of his people. He had done it for Abraham and Sarah. He had done it um, for, for Jacob and Rachel. And of course, Zechariah would have known that. But what Mary hears is something that's never been done before or since, and something that is absolutely impossible. What is the best unexpected news you've ever gotten in your life? I remember growing up dreaming that someday Publishers Clearinghouse would come knock on our family's door, surprising us with a giant check. I had this memory of a television commercial with this older woman. She's in her bathrobe with rollers in her hair because they really did just like show up and surprise you and this giant check. I even remember filling out the sweepstakes entry form, which I seem to remember involved putting stickers on a piece of paper and putting it in the mail, and dreaming that maybe perhaps the Publishers Clearinghouse Prize Patrol would stop by. Now, I realized I did some research into this, and um, I realized that actually those commercials of the people with the big check didn't actually start airing on television until I was almost 15 years old. So it must just be the last few years of high school that I remember this from. But in my mind, it was like my whole childhood. But you know, our memories play tricks on us. Um, needless to say, the Publishers Clearinghouse Prize Patrol never showed up to present our family with a giant check. But I've had a lot of other great surprises in my life. When I was 20 years old, Beth's roommate called me up and asked me if I would be willing to take Beth out on her 18th birthday to get her out of the dorm at UMBC so that they could set up the room for a surprise birthday party. Now, the thing is, Beth and I had never actually been out on a date prior to this. We knew each other. We were both in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So her roommate's saying, just take her out and keep her out and bring her back at 9.30. And I said, well, I'll ask her out, but I don't know if she'll say yes. And her roommate said, oh, she'll say yes. <laughs> and that was all the encouragement I needed. And so the day after tomorrow will mark 29 years since that first official date on her 18th birthday. That was unexpected good news. I liked this girl. I thought she was cute. I was kind of flirtatious with her. But knowing that she felt the same way about me just was, mm, that was all the encouragement I needed. Well, 2,000 years ago, a teenage girl in a very small and obscure village in the Middle East was given the absolute best and most unexpected news that's ever been given to anyone in the history of the world. We've all heard the story so many times, but for Mary, this young woman who'd never been with a man, to be visited by an archangel and to be told that she's going to become miraculously pregnant and that she's going to give birth to the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah from David's line, the one that God's people had been waiting for for a thousand years and who would be even greater than God's people anticipated. This 
was stunning to her. And it should be to us. You know, it's not because we've heard it before, right? But for Mary, Mary had never read this story before, right? She had never seen a children's nativity play with a fifth grader playing the angel Gabriel and sort of monotone mumbling the lines. So she wasn't like, oh yeah, we've seen this before. It was all brand new. It was intensely real. It was terrifying. It was confusing and it was wonderful <coughs> beyond her wildest imagination. It was the sixth month, we're told. The sixth month of what? Well, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember from last week, the angel Gabriel had first gone to the temple to announce to Zechariah that his wife was going to have a child. And now it is six months later that the same angel, Gabriel, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Anybody reading this, if they had heard of Nazareth at all, it was a very, very small town in the middle of the hills that was of no importance to anyone. Nathaniel, one of Jesus' earliest followers, when he first heard that the Messiah came from Nazareth, his response was, could anything good come out of Nazareth? He's sent to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, Joseph was of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He comes to her and he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And she's greatly troubled. She's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Favored one. The Lord is with you. We know from the sacrifice that they offer for the firstborn that Joseph and Mary do not have a lot of money. They, the, the standard sacrifice that you're supposed to offer for the redemption of the firstborn is a lamb but they don't have that, they don't have the means to do that, so they offer up two pigeons, which is the offering for poor people. So here is a lower middle class, working class, teenage girl engaged to a man, probably had never been anywhere in the world other than from Nazareth to Jerusalem and back. She's highly favored. The Lord is with her. It reminds me of the way that the angel came to Gideon and what the angel of the Lord said to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. We read in verse 11 and 12 of Judges 6, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. He's beating out wheat in a wine press to hide from the Midianites who have come in and taken over the land. If the Lord is with him, why are they being oppressed by the Midianites? And if he's such a mighty man of valor, why is he hiding and he can't even thresh his wheat in the open daylight? What we see here is that God's word is not like our word. We describe things the way we see them, the way they are. But God, in his word, has power to create 
what he decrees. And so he can look at this coward hiding in the wine press, threshing out his wheat, fearful of the Midianites, and say, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And he can look at this teenage girl in an obscure village of no social standing or account in the world and say, you are highly favored by God because God had set his grace upon them and Gideon would in fact become a mighty man of valor and he would lead Israel to one of their greatest military victories in history where 300 men send 120,000 fleeing for their lives because God was with him indeed, even though it didn't look like it. And Mary is, of course, going to become literally the one whom God will be with, as God will be carried in her womb for nine months and then held in her arms and nursed by her. God sees and creates by his word. So I think a really quick point of application for us from this is that we need to remember that it is what God says of us that is the ultimate truth about us and not what we think of ourselves nor what the world thinks of us. If God has been gracious to us and has adopted us as children through faith in Jesus Christ, then that is what we are and we too are highly favored by God and God is with us. We are recipients of great and amazing grace. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been brought from condemnation into adoption and justification and the glory of God. We are partakers of the divine nature through Christ. We may not always realize that about ourselves. We might think, well, I'm just an ordinary fill-in-the-blank. And if you use that kind of language with the world, the world's just going to sort of roll their eyes and say, okay, whatever your religion tells you, if that makes you feel better about yourself, oh, child of God, or, oh, don't you think you're holier than thou, self-righteous, oh, you're the children of God, huh? So the world may despise or misunderstand. We may even doubt. But it is what God declares to be so that is so. And what God has spoken in his word is the truth that stands forever. As Mary's confused and puzzling over this greeting, Gabriel continues speaking to her. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. First of all, do you ever notice that when angels start speaking to people, most of the time the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. Why do they have to say that? Because if an angel showed up and started talking to you, you would probably just lose it. I mean, it would be terrifying. Angels are powerful and majestic beings, and to be in their presence is, is terrifying for mere humans. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, twice fell down and worshipped angels who had to say, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm just a servant of God. So we get all sorts of weird notions about angels, and as much as I, I like cute children's nativity plays as much as anybody else, 
seeing a kindergartner in a white robe with a you know, little tinsel crown, I don't think it helps us to understand what it's like to have an angel appear to you. Be not afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And this helps us to understand what was meant by greetings, highly favored one. A traditional translation of that earlier verse is, Hail, Mary, full of grace. Right? And you may have heard those words before. And there can be a misunderstanding that maybe Mary is full of grace that she can then give out to poor sinners to help us in our hour of need. That's not what's being said. She is full of grace because she's received much grace from God. She's favored, which is why the ESV, I think, does a better translation. You are highly favored. And here, in case we missed it, the explanation's given. You have found favor with God. That's what makes the difference in people's lives. You found favor with God. It was said of Noah in his generation. He found favor with God. Abraham experienced it in his generation. He found favor with God. That's what changes our lives. God finding favor with us. And why does he find favor with us? We always want to go down this road of, well, Mary must have been somehow this wonderfully sinless, exemplary person. And I'm not saying she wasn't a believer and a great believer. She certainly responds to the Lord in a very faithful way. But we miss the point if we think that the difference is to be found in Mary. The difference is found in God's grace. And we need to know that because the same grace that Mary found, we also find in salvation. It's grace that changes us. It's grace that transforms us. So Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to conceive and bear a son. And his name is going to be Salvation, Yeshua. Now, Jesus is actually not an unusual name among Jewish boys. It's just a variation of the name Joshua, Yeshua. And it's one of the great Old Testament heroes of the faith. Many Christian people today, of course, name their children biblical names. We did that with our kids, you know, Andrew and Jeremiah and Pure Grace, that's our daughter's name. Um, and so it, back in Jesus' day, many, many Jewish families named their children Abraham or Joshua. But what's unusual is that this Joshua, this Yeshua, this Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now those verses, 32 and 33, we need to hear them the way Mary heard them and not jump ahead in the plot. The way Mary heard those words was, your son is going to be the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David. She knew it because it was told and repeated throughout the history of God's people for a thousand years prior to her hearing these words from Gabriel. A thousand years before, God spoke to King David through the prophet Nathan. David had wanted to build the temple for God. He said, I've gotten into Jerusalem. I've brought the Ark of the Covenant up into Jerusalem. I have a palace to live in. I need to build the Lord a house. And the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to say, mm, no, you're not going to build me a house. 
And then he says this, very unexpected, very shockingly gracious. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, many Jewish people, when these words were first spoken, they thought, oh, he's talking about Solomon, because Solomon builds the temple. But it's not Solomon, because we know the throne of Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. But even in this context, most Jewish people heard this last verse in the promise in 2 Samuel, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is like God is going to treat this king as a son, and is going to be as a father to him. And that's probably the way that Mary heard those words. Just to confirm that, in the Psalms, written hundreds of years after David and hundreds of years before Mary, we have more echoes of this Davidic covenant, this foundation of hopes for the Messiah. Psalm 132 says, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. That's Psalm 132, verse 10. Anointed one is Messiah in Hebrew. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And then Psalm 89. Psalm 89 We read this, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then later in the Psalm, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name, his horn shall be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father my God and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm. Now, all of these prophecies, and there's more, there's uh, 1 Chronicles 17, and there's other passages we could look at as well. All of them are saying someone's going to come from David's line And he's going to be a king. And he's going to be a greater king than Israel had ever seen. In fact, he's going to be the highest of all the kings of the earth. He's going to be in that way king of kings. He's going to be the firstborn of the sons of God. God's going to be a father to him. He'll be a son to the father. And his kingdom will last forever. But still, for a thousand years, and still to this day, by the way, Jewish people heard these words and thought this is going to be a mere human being, just a person born into the line of David. And this is like poetic language of how great he's going to be. They didn't think really the son of God, God come in human form. So for Mary, at this point in Gabriel's message, she's getting this part one of the message, which is stunning enough, and that is the hope of Israel the one that Israel's been waiting for for a thousand years is going to be her child, born to her. Now, I think God's people should have realized that this was going to be more than just a human Messiah because God said 
in Psalm 89, I will keep him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him. And in 1 Chronicles 17, we're told his, he will sit on the throne forever. And there's no human king or queen, no matter how long their reign, no matter how good they are, who sit as king forever. But at this point, Mary has a question for Gabriel, and it's a very reasonable question. It's a very honest and humble question. She says, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, on the surface of it, if you look at it, Mary's response to Gabriel is very similar to Zechariah's response to Gabriel. So verse 34, we get Mary's response. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And verse 18, if you look up, for me it's on the same page, might be the previous page. Verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. They're both saying how, and then they're stating the seeming impossibility of their circumstances. Gabriel responds to Zechariah with a rebuke. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. It's a strong rebuke for his lack of faith. Why? Because Mary doesn't get that kind of rebuke. So what gives? We have to remember Zechariah is a priest. He's in the temple. He's confronted by the archangel in the temple. And he's given a promise that echoes what God has done in the past for others. He really had no basis to question. He should have trusted. Mary, teenage girl, she's just in her town, right? Tradition is that she was at the well drawing water. And she's never known a man. She knows that that's not how babies come about. I think it's uh, interesting that modern skeptics challenge the people of the Bible for being simple-minded and willing to believe in impossible things like the virgin birth. By the way, if you ever want to be not encouraged, um, I was looking for quotes about the virgin birth. Everybody's looking for an opportunity to not be encouraged, right? Um, I was looking for quotes about the virgin birth, and I ended up on Goodreads, which is a place that has a lot of quotes. And they, and they had a topic, virgin birth. And here are all these quotes about the virgin birth. And 90% of them were people doubting, questioning, and ridiculing the idea of a virgin birth, including Episcopal bishops and ordained ministers who were saying, of course, we don't believe in the actual virgin birth anymore. But here's the metaphorical meaning of it. It's like, and the reason why is they're like, well, we're, we're not as simple-minded as people back then. We know that it's impossible for a virgin to have a baby. We understand about the whole sperm and the egg thing. We're so much more sophisticated than they are. But the reality is that both Mary and Joseph react in a way that makes it quite clear that they knew quite well where babies come from and they knew that a virgin birth was impossible. That's why Mary says, how are you gonna do this? I've never known a man. And that's why Joseph says, oh, she's pregnant. I better divorce her because they know they're not stupid. Like, sometimes we look back at people in the Bible times and we think they're just, you know, dimwits, but 
we probably are more dim-witted than they are because we're, anyway, I can go down a whole line on that. But. So Gabriel rebukes Zechariah, but he patiently answers Mary's simple and honest question. And he does so in a way that makes it very clear that this child that she will give birth to won't just be called the Son of the Most High. God won't just treat him as if he is his son. He will actually be the Son of God. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing's impossible for God. That's the answer to the modern skeptics. It's not possible for a virgin to conceive. Of course it's not. For anybody but God. I love Billy Graham's response to this. He said whenever he dealt with any sort of skepticism from people about how can you believe this in the Bible and how can you believe that in the Bible, he said, look, the very first line of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If I believe that, the rest of it's pretty easy. If God can create everything out of nothing, he can create a baby in a, in a virgin's womb. It's not that hard for him. But Gabriel's answer here is also a clear rebuke to Muslim thinking. Muslims reject the idea that Jesus could be the son of God. Interesting, although they believe in the virgin birth. But they don't believe that Jesus could be the son of God because they think that that would require the blasphemous notion that God would have sexual relations with a human woman. And of course, such an idea is blasphemous. And one of the things that Jacob Lee has done in conversations with Muslims, and he's trained others to do in conversations with Muslims, is let Muslims say why they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they say, what they'll say is something like, it's just blasphemous to believe that God would have sexual relations with a woman. And you answer back and say, you're right, that is blasphemous. Because they're not expecting that. You say, that's not what we believe. <laughs> and it's not what the text says. The text says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So that's why we confess what we confess today. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary as a miracle. Her humanity came directly, his humanity came directly from her humanity, but he was also fully God. God created him in her womb. This is when it begins to sink into Mary, that she is in fact going to be the mother of of the Son of God, that she is going to carry divinity in her womb. Why did Jesus need to be born of a virgin? Some people wonder that. Well, the simple answer is because he needed to be both God and man, the incarnation of God as a man. And he needed to be sinless from conception. If Jesus had an earthly father, he would have inherited his father's sinful nature and he would only be an ordinary human child and not the God-man. But in Jesus' own person, even as a tiny zygote and embryo in the womb of his mother, God and man are reconciled together in one person. 
He is, from the very beginning of his humanity, the one mediator between God and man, the one who can lay a hand on us both, the one who can reconcile in himself those who've been estranged by sin. Sam Storms, who's a pastor in Oklahoma City, says this, the principal reason for the virgin birth was so that the entry of God into human flesh might be by divine initiative. It's not by any human act or at any human initiative that salvation comes to us. It is divinely initiated. Man does nothing. Mary did nothing other than submit to what God would do. Joseph did nothing. God did it all. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now Mary's response to this clarification from Gabriel is humble and it's obedient and it's a great model. It's really the only thing that believers should ever say to God about anything that God has ordained for us. Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's life was made better, but not easier by this impossible message. And she knew that because she wasn't dumb. She knew, ain't nobody going to believe me. I'm going to tell them I've never known a man, and yet I'm pregnant, and they're going to say the same thing that I thought. That doesn't happen. Mary's life was blessed. She was highly favored, but her life was not made any easier. She had to know how complicated and difficult this miracle was going to make her simple life, which seemed before to be so predictable. Ancient people knew that virgins don't conceive and give birth. When Joseph heard the news, he resolved to divorce her quietly. And we know from the Gospels that scandal and gossip plagued Mary and Joseph and Jesus for the rest of their lives. That's why they stayed in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. They weren't super eager to move back to Nazareth. Why? Small town. In John's gospel in particular, he brings out that even Jesus during his lifetime was accused of being the son of a Samaritan or something like that because of the scandalous origins surrounding his birth. Now, she couldn't even guess how hard her life was going to become. She and Joseph were going to have to flee for their lives to Egypt and live in a foreign land for a time. And then ultimately, she would have to watch her divine Messiah son die a horrible death on a Roman cross while she stood at the foot of the cross and wept in agony and confusion. Being chosen by God to be blessed by his grace makes our lives infinitely and eternally better, but does not make them easier. We need to understand that. There's a lot of people saying the contrary. Being chosen by God, by his grace, to be blessed, to be highly favored by him, it does. It redeems us from sin and death and condemnation, adopts us as a child of God, gives us an eternal inheritance. But it doesn't make life in this world easier. In fact, Jesus promised us that it would make it harder. Because the invitation is, take up your cross daily and follow me. And a cross is not an easy chair. The world will often mock us and ridicule us for our faith in Jesus. Jesus himself promised us that they would do so. 
striving to live by the word of God, to be faithful to God, will always make us out of step with the world and its ways. This time of year, I sometimes think that perhaps a good name for the church should be the Island of Misfit Toys. Because we're the ones who don't fit in with the world. We're not chasing the things that they're chasing. Following Jesus doesn't fit with our world. But we need to remember, if we're feeling weighed down, if we're feeling like life is hard, if we're feeling overwhelmed by the busyness of Christmas, we need to remember the surprising, impossible, and generous grace of Christmas. We need to be surprised and humbled that God the Son, the King of Heaven, chose, chose to step out of glory and enter into tiny, frail humanity for you and for me, for our salvation, to save us from sin and death and eternal destruction. He came because he loves us that much. He chose to come and save us, even though it would cost him everything. And that is so much more than a cute children's story. It is the real story of our salvation. And it's a story that we get to remember and partake in as we share in the Lord's Supper. So this Christmas season, may we hear the Christmas message for the impossibly good news that it is. And may it humble us, and may it cause us to respond with joy and with gratitude and with the same response as Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to his word, because I am so thankful that I've been so highly favored. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, and thank you for your Son. Help us to worship him in spirit and in truth, with joy and gratitude and humility and obedience. Prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper with faith and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.